Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Worcester's Talking News, brought to you by Worcester News and Equipment for the Blind, with the permission of the Worcester News, and recorded on Thursday the 29th of November 2018, here in Colin Chance House, Worcester. I'm Evelyn Brock, I'm the editor, and with me to read the news articles are Paddy Fellows, Hugh Thomas and Moira Lowe. Our sound engineer is Barry Hurd. A warm welcome to new listeners. I hope everyone enjoys our offering. In addition to news items, you'll hear some useful telephone numbers, readers' letters, birthdays and obituaries, on this day and thought for the week. Do let us know your birthday so that we can greet you specially when the time comes. This service is free to users, but if you wish to make a voluntary donation, it can be sent to Colin Chance House, Wilds Lane, Worcester, WR5 1DA. We do like hearing from you, and a message can be left on our answer phone. Worcester, that's 01905 767766, or add a note to your wallet. We ask listeners that if there is a problem with any aspect of your receiving your recording, please use the answer phone on the number I've just given and leave a message to that effect. Well, off we go, and we start with headlines. Friday the 23rd of November, uni students' cocaine shame. Saturday the 24th of November, I never offered her cocaine. Monday the 26th of November, jailed for affairs with pupils. Tuesday the 27th of November, man hurled racial abuse in row over cigarette. Wednesday the 28th of November, trying to survive. Thursday the 29th of November, club bosses' defence is, quotes, desperate. So I'll now ask each of our readers to introduce themselves and then read their headline articles. Right, I'm Patty Fellows and I'm about to read about the uni students' cocaine shame. A university student brought shame on his family after developing a cocaine habit while dealing with the pressure of final exams, a court heard. Police found wraps of Class A A drugs in Sheba Shafiq's car after stopping him in Worcester around the time of his final exam for a finance and accounting degree. The 22-year-old solicitor's Solicitor Jason Patel said the student was finding the final year of his course difficult and he was using the odd on the odd occasion. Mr Patel said his client's family from Pakistan were disgusted when they became aware of Shafiq's drug use while the defendant himself was ashamed. In the Asian community, You have neighbours asking questions about the circumstances, explained the solicitor, before referring to the shame he has brought on his family. 
Nicola Ritchie, who was prosecuting, said Shafiq had stepped, was stopped by police in his car while driving in St Peter's area on June the 10th, no, 19th, I think it is, yes. She said the defendant was in the car with another person and on searching the vehicle, officers found 11 wraps of cocaine underneath the rear passenger seat. The drugs were hidden inside empty Starbucks burst packets, the court heard, and the defendant confirmed it was cocaine before he was arrested. Shafiq of Mortlade Avenue, Worcester, accepted a charge of possession of a controlled drug of Class A when appearing before magistrates on Thursday, November the 22nd. He has no previous mm. convictions. Mr Patel said that Shafiq cooperated with police and, referring to the substance, told them exactly what it was when asked. The student went on to fail his final exams but passed them during the resits in August and graduates next week. The solicitor said that being held in custody was a wake-up call for Shafiq, who is now worried that any conviction could hamper his chance of landing a graduate job. He currently has a part-time job selling mobile phones, earning around about £500 a month, the court heard. Mr Patel asked the defendant to be given a conditional discharge. Harry Marku, chair of the bench, said we've considered the fact that you want a conditional discharge, but this is far too serious for that. We're going to fine you for possession. Shafiq, who was supported by his dad in court, was ordered to pay a total of £325 in fines and costs. Hello, it's Moira. My headline mm -hmm. from Saturday is, I never offered her cocaine. A nightclub boss denied sexually assaulting a woman or offering other women cocaine so he could have sex with them, but admitted wounding a man in a fight. Bushwhackers owner Darren Pinches, dressed smartly in a dark suit, cried and wiped his eyes with a tissue at Warwick Crown Court yesterday as his defence case began. The 52-year-old of Bromyard Road, Worcester, appeared emotional when mention was made of his family. He spoke of financial problems and drinking heavily and admitted using cocaine in the past. He told the jury he did not sexually assault a woman in a storeroom at Worcester nightclub Bushwhackers or forced a bag of cocaine over her face on New Year's Day last year. He denied supplying cocaine to a second woman in February 2016 or making an offer of cocaine to a third in September 2015. He acknowledged he washed cocaine down a sink at his home, which resulted in police taking him to the ground, but denied unlawful possession, claiming the drug had been dropped off at his home at Berkeley Gardens, Fernhill Heath, for disposal by General Manager Mark Humpage after he found a small quantity in a bushwhacker's toilet. A document dated January the 12th, the day before Pinch's arrest, showing a record of the discovery of a suspected controlled drug described as a bag of white powder, which read, dropped at Darren's safe broken. Pinches acknowledged that the word mate in a text message sent by his manager was a code word for the discovery of drugs at his clubs. Pinches broke down when he said police arrived at his home, telling him they were investigating an allegation of rape. Was that said quietly? asked Mr Burroughs. 
No, said Pinches. I asked them to take me straight down to the police station. Why were you concerned they should do that, said Mr Burroughs. Pinches sobbed, as he said, because my children and wife were in the house. He told the jury he was the youngest of three brothers, brought up in Wensbury. His parents had run bars and restaurants and he left school at 16. He again became emotional when he referred to the death of his father on February 24, 2016, after he developed dementia. After questions from his barrister, Michael Burroughs QC, he acknowledged previous convictions for shoplifting in November 1984, obstructing a constable in March 1988 and wounding in January 1989. Pinchy said the wounding offence involved him throwing a fire extinguisher at a man during a fight in a nightclub, which he had admitted. He became involved in bushwhackies in 1993 or 94 and had always been the owner with brother Craig. When mention was made of Prince's wife Jessica, their marriage 13 years ago and their two children, he grew red in the face and began to sob, reaching for a tissue. Mr Burroughs said, take a few moments, compose yourself. He told the jury his wife and children had been present at his home when he was arrested on January the 13th last year. Pinches told the jury financial problems and that a doctor had prescribed him tablets to calm him down. He explained that his skin condition was very itchy and prevented him sleeping and when he had problems with the banks had been drinking heavily. He said he had used cocaine in the past but was never a frequent user, taking it between... 12 and 15 times when he was a lot younger. Mr Burroughs asked Pinches about the allegation that he offered cocaine to a woman in an upstairs room in Browns in February 2015. He said, She says you have taken cocaine in her presence, have you? No, replied Pinches. Have you offered her cocaine, said Mr Burroughs? No, said Pinches. Have you ever made any sexual approach to her, asked Mr Burroughs? Never, said Pinches. Pinches said the woman had approached him in Browns and spoke about her partner and he suggested the two of them try to sort out their problems. He, distri- he disputed that he sent a manager to bottles to request she return to Browns, spiked her drink, offered her cocaine or that he had told her he intended to have sex with her. He said he never took cocaine with a woman and her friend on stairs at the crypt in Bushwhackers in February 2016 or later that night at an apartment at the Quay before engaging in consensual sexual activity. He said that he had made normal chit-chat with the complainant who accuses him of a sexual assault in a Bushwhackers storeroom but denies that the attack took place or that he was even in the storeroom with her. The woman said she kicked open a door as she fled. But Pinches said, there's never been a door there for 23 years. When asked if he had forced her to take cocaine, he replied, never. The trial continues. Hi, it's... ...reading from Monday's edition, November the 26th. A former music teacher has been jailed for two years after having affairs with two teenage pupils at the school where he worked. Richard Knight of Worcester groomed the two pupils at Bromsgrove School before progressing to a sexual relationship and often neglecting to wear a condom, a court heard. Judge Jeremy Baker, QC, 
speaking at Worcester Crown Court on Friday, told Knight, 53, the two victims had particularly vulnerable emotional backgrounds. You knew that, and that is why they were specifically targeted over and above other children at school, he said. The judge went on to say he was satisfied your conduct was wholly inappropriate and described Knight's behaviour as predatory and that there was a significant degree of planning. The defendant, also previously the conductor of Malvern Festival Chorus, had begun the second affair after the first one ended, but had taught both pupils at the school. Prosecutor Simon Foster said Knight, formerly of Rainbow Hill, Worcester, had had sex with one of the victims for the first time at her own home <coughs> while her parents were out on Christmas Eve. With that same victim, he had never worn a condom and she would often have to ride her bicycle to various pharmacists to get morning after pills. The defendant had sex with both girls on school property as well as at his own home and in his car as well as on a holiday in New York with one. With the first victim, Judge Baker said he reassured her at the time with a false picture of his marriage which he claimed was coming to an end. The court heard that Knight was having sex with the first victim between 2006 and 2010. The judge said that when he left school, he moved his attentions to his second victim, who he had sex with between 2011 and 2012. The affairs came to light when Knight's then-wife became suspicious and he eventually admitted that he had had sex with the first victim. She did not, however, alert the police until 2017 when he denied, had the, he denied having had the first affair to police. The second affair then came to light and Knight was arrested on February the 1st, 2018 when he admitted to having had sex with both girls. The court heard that Knight's wife had also been a pupil at the school while he was working there. Uh, and they married in 2002 before separating in 2010 when she discovered the first affair. In a statement read out in court, one of the victims said Knight had given her confidence, uh, but she could now see he had taken advantage of the situation. She said she became more and more isolated and now feels embarrassed about how easily he manipulated her. Uh, he had abused his position of trust to fulfil his own desire, she continued. I was a child and he manipulated me, but I feel guilty due to my part in ending Knight's wife's marriage. She said she'd felt angry but now felt sorry for him, but emphasised that he never forced me to do anything. I would like him to seek help and move from this chapter in his life, she added. The other victim described how the relationship started with emails and texts and then kissing before more intimate moments took place. 
She said she had lost friends due to the relationship because she didn't want them to find out. I was struggling to discover who I was in my woman's body, she said. I thought I loved him and he loved me. She said Knight manipulated her into believing I I needed him to function. I was led to believe that sex was the only area of life that that I excelled, she added. In a statement also read out in court, Knight said he felt in love with both those girls. Sam Lansdale, defending, asked the judge to give her client a suspended sentence and said his career is clearly at an end. Knight left his £55,000 a year job at Bromsgrove School last year and Miss Lansdale said he now earns only 17000 as working for examining board AQA in a role where he is not in contact with pupils. Knight moved from Worcester in July and now lives in Littleworth uh, <coughs> Lane Twinning. Dukesbury. Miss Lansdale said her client had an isolated upbringing and his youngest of several children of strict Christian parents. His only social activity growing up was at church on Sunday, uh, she said, and he found it hard to make friends at an all-boys boarding school before going on to University of Oxford for a music scholarship. He accepted two charges of sexual activity with children aged between 13 and 17 when appearing at Kidderminster Magistrates Court in October. As well as the prison sentence, a sexual prevention order has been put in place for 10 years, preventing him from having unsupervised contact with girls under the age of 16. It's Evelyn again. My headline... Man hurled racial abuse in row over cigarette. A pub goer racially abused another man after he allegedly struck his girlfriend in a dispute over a cigarette. Luke Moole had been drinking at the Slug and Lettuce in the Cross with his partner before getting into an argument with a man in the doorway, the man the court heard. The 20-year-old defendant was seen by police lifting a barrier post with two hands as though to lift it above his head. As the fight escalated, said prosecutor Nicola Ritchie. She said officers spotted Moore at around 1.25am on November the 3rd, appearing to arm himself and shouted to him to stop and pushed him away resulting in him falling onto his back. The defendant began shouting racial insults at the other male and claiming he had hit his girlfriend. Miss Ritchie said officers then saw the man appear to strike the woman with their own eyes, though he was not arrested. He went on to say that Moore claimed to not remember anything of the incident when interviewed, having drunk an estimated 10 pints of lager that night. The court heard he had previously been convicted of threatening behaviour in July 2014 and with threatening with intent the same year. 
Most recently, he was convicted of being drunk and disorderly in 2017, but has not offended for at least 12 months. Representing himself in Magistrates' Court on Thursday, November the 22nd, Moore of Lister Avenue, Worcester, accepted a, race of, uh, a charge of racially aggravated harassment. He said he and his girlfriend had gone on the night out while his mum looked after their three-month-old daughter at home. They had planned to go for food and to the cinema, but had instead ended up remaining in the slug. He said a black male asked him for a cigarette as they headed outside, and when Moore refused, he claimed the man became aggressive and called him names before his girlfriend was forced to get between them. Moore said he stepped away because he didn't want any trouble. However, he claimed the man then began calling his girlfriend names and came towards her, leading to Moore having to drag her back. He said the man has hit my girlfriend, <coughs> although it's unclear whether he was intending to strike Moore. The defendant claimed he had video footage of the alleged assault, <coughs> pardon me, which he offered to show the court, though chair of the bench Harry Marco said this would not be necessary. From a man's point of view, it's not nice seeing your girlfriend get hit, continued Moore. The police saw my girlfriend get hit, but didn't do anything. He apologised to the court for his language towards the man. We don't want to press charges, we just want to get this over and done with, he added. He was ordered to pay £335 in fines and costs. Mr Marku said the fine would have been significantly less had it not been a racial offence. Mm -hmm. As it is racially aggravated, it does make it more serious, he added. Moore agreed to pay the money off in instalments of £40 per month. My next uh, headline is Trying to Survive, and it's about a homeless ex-soldier who denies drugs claims about a mini Glastonbury. A homeless camp described as a mini Glastonbury has come under fire over alleged drug dealing, public urination and antisocial behaviour. But as an ex-soldier living there denies the claims and says we're just trying to survive, the site, which is in the trees behind Primo Bar and Dining in Sidbury, Worcester, has also been branded an eyesore by a local resident. However, one member of the camp called Jake, a former soldier suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, denies the claims. He said, we're just trying to survive. It's winter and it's freezing cold. We won't be here forever. <coughs> We don't have parties or loud music. We keep ourselves to ourselves. They are just saying there's a suspected drug dealing because we're homeless. It's a stereotype. We are stuck outside as there's no emergency housing available. All the places have been taken up. 
Jake, who fought in Helmand province, Afghanistan, became homeless after he left the military in 2013. He said he gave his partner all of his possessions, including their home, after their relationship broke down. The 27-year-old, who served in the army for six years, moved into the camp two months ago and is currently trying to secure housing through military charities. He added, We were staying in Tent Town on the riverside, but we were moved. We were sleeping in doorways in town, and then we were moved on again. Jake denied that he or his fellow campers urinate in the canal and said they instead use a bucket which they pour down the drain. He also denied that they cut down trees and insisted they only use dead wood for fires. The rough sleeper added that the camp is well camouflaged and doubted that the passers-by would even be able to see the site. The former private also insisted that the fires at the site where three other people are staying, were controlled in a pit. However, resident Rebecca Gardner, who is 48, described the campers of Mini Glastonbury, where she thinks drug dealing takes place. She added, It's very visible from the commandery. People who work there have seen them urinating in the canal. It's a disgusting mess. We have a Christmas fair this weekend, if you look across, it's not a very good advertisement. They're ripping the trees down to make fires. At 3am in the morning, they're chopping trees down. Every morning at about 6am, there's a flurry of people going there, exchanging things. Miss Gardner said that there had been also an increase in the number of rats in the area since the cab appeared. The resident added that one couple had been at the site since July. She thinks that the patch of land has become a haven for the homeless because it's not been maintained. The owner of Primo Bar and Dining said some of his young female staff felt threatened by the rough sleepers when they took the bins out. He added, I've complained to the city council twice. Three weeks ago they said they would be moving you in a week's time. Every day we get more people there. Worcester City Council, which owns the land where the camp is, said we've been monitoring the rough sleepers on this site and intend to start proceeding shortly to move them on from this location. We're liaising closely with the police and local agencies that deal with rough sleepers to assess the welfare of the people on the site. Okay, today's headline... Um, club boss's defence is desperate. A nightclub boss accused of a cocaine-fueled sex attack on a young woman was told his defence was desperate as the trial enters its final stages. The jury of six men and six women is expected to retire today to consider its verdict in the trial of bushwhackers and browns at the key owner Darren Pinches, who stands accused of charges relating to drugs and sexual assault. Yesterday, two very different pictures were painted of the 52-year-old businessman now of Bromyard Road, Worcester. The prosecution said Pinches had mounted a desperate defence and there was a clear pattern of abuse of vulnerable and incapacitated women. 
However, Pinch's defence lawyer said the case was built on shifting sands and slammed one of the women for telling lie after lie. Pinches denies the five counts against him. He stands accused of administering cocaine to a then 20-year-old woman with intent to stupefy or overpower her before sexually assaulting her in a bushwhacker storeroom on New Year's Day last year. He is also accused of supplying cocaine to a then 19-year-old woman in the crypt at Bushwhackers and again at an apartment at the Quay during the Worcester floods between February the 9th and 15th 2016. A third woman, then aged 40, alleges Pinches offered her cocaine in a room at Brown's at the Quay between September the 10th and 13th 2015. The woman claims Pinches demanded sex, comparing him to fictional serial killer Hannibal Lecter. The woman told a jury earlier in the trial that Pinches, or a member of his staff, had also spiked her drink before she fled the building and locked herself in her car. Pinches also denies he was in possession of cocaine after police stopped him flushing it down the sink of their home in Fernal Heath on January the 13th last year, the same day as traces of the same type of cocaine were found on top of a speaker in a storeroom at Bushwhackers. Ben Ayner, QC, prosecuting, challenged defence claims that Pinches was embarrassed by scars on his legs, described by one of the women. He told the jury... There was no embarrassment in showing the scarring, just as there was no embarrassment in dropping his trousers in front of a female trainee solicitor without warning at his interview. Okay. He asked the jury how the complainant could know about the scarring unless she saw it. Mr Aynes said if the sexual assault allegation were malicious, why did she not go a bit further and claim something more than sexual groping? He also said there was an abundance of supporting evidence, including a doorman's account of the alleged sexual assault victim, wide-eyed, upset and fearful, at the bottom of the steps to the storeroom. A glass collector, who said the woman told him, Darren tried to rape me, and two of her friends, who described her curled up in a ball in the cross without shoes and with mascara running down her face and her lipstick smudged. He invited the jury to be extremely sceptical about a document produced late in the trial by the defence, which recorded that the cocaine dropped off at Pinch's home by manager Mark Humpage was found in a bushwhacker's toilet. Mr Aynes said, What there has been has been a desperate attempt by Mr Pinch's to distance himself from his drug use, firstly by lying he never took drugs, and secondly, by trying to suggest some kind of contamination argument. And thirdly, by producing this very suspect document late in the day. Mr Aynes said there were similarities in the accounts of the three women, describing a clear pattern of abuse of vulnerable and incapacitated women by a man who considered himself untouchable. But Michael Burroughs QC dismissed the similarities between the accounts of the three women as superficial. He said, the sad reality is that people do make false allegations and you may never discover the reason why they're making those false allegations. He referred to the shifting sands of the prosecution case, describing how the dates on the indictment had twice been changed to match later witness evidence. He said that at the time of the February 2016 allegation, the key was gutted, a building site and a shell, and that flood water would have come up to the complainant's knees, not her ankles as she claimed. 
He also referred to paranoia as a side effect of cocaine use and suggested any consensual encounter with pinches was imagined with all the hallmarks of an account not based on reality. He described the woman who alleged the sexual assault as telling lie after lie after lie to try to get attention from her mother, including that she had a miscarriage of twins, had gone to hospital after an overdose, had been admitted to hospital with blood loss and had been checked for cancerous cells. Mr Burroughs said the woman had previously admitted cocaine use and that when she came downstairs after the alleged sexual assault, her dress had not been out of place or disturbed. Mr Burroughs also said the search of bushwhackers on the day of the defendant's arrest was flawed, involving some of the same officers who could have been exposed to a puff of cocaine as Pinches was restrained in his bathroom. The defence also argues that the alleged sexual assault victim could not have been barricaded in the storeroom with Pinches as there was no door. Mr Burroughs said that two of the complainants were friends and one had been her allegation to bolster that of her friend. The trial continues. A councillor has invited locals to protest against plans for cuts to a library in Worcester. City councillor Richard Udall warned of the impact that the potential cuts would have on St John's Library. He called on those who opposed the proposals mm -hmm. to make their feelings known to County Council Cabinet Member Lucy Hodgson when she visits the library between 3pm and 5pm on December the 7th. Worcestershire County Council intends to slash £1 million from its library budget by the end of the financial year in 2021 as a result of cuts to local government funding. Councillor Udall, who represents St John, said, The library is the anchor of the local community. It is a community centre for the village in the city. It is used by many local residents every day and provides a first-class service. It has brilliant staff and it is an important local treasure, the jewel in the crown of St John's. Any threat to the library will be firmly resisted. The councillor added a council survey was being used as a justification to cut the service. He said, we need as many people as possible to respond to the survey and answer question 10, which asks for other ideas, with the words, no cuts to the library service. Some of the proposed cuts outlined in the survey are reducing hours, axing staff, handing libraries over to communities, co-locating them with other services, making them available to businesses to hire and getting staff to provide other local services. <laughs> County Councillor Lucy Hodgson, Cabinet Member for Communities, said, the role of libraries within local communities has been changing now for over a decade. A lot of good work has already been done to get communities in Worcestershire more involved so that services at local libraries can be sustained for the benefit of everyone. It's more important than ever before 
that communities come together and get more involved to ensure provision can be maintained at libraries. We also need to look at more co-location of libraries and sharing space with other organisations so services remain at the heart of our communities. And now an article about paramedics and what they suffer. Disgust at abuse hurled at medic. A paramedic said he was angry and disgusted after he was allegedly spat at and threatened while working in Hereford City Centre on Saturday night. Mike Duggan, who is known as Taff, was sent to a job in Union Street at 10.45pm during a busy Saturday night but soon discovered he was not required. As he sat in his ambulance car, which clearly shows he is a paramedic, a passerby was started to shout at him. He said, I was just about to drive off when some man who had nothing to do with the incident in the first place started shouting abuse and started spitting at me. It was for no apparent reason. He had nothing to do with the reason I was there. Mr. Duggan asked the man if he needed help but the man became angrier. He said, I got out of the car, he was punching the hell out of it. That is when he said he was going to knock me out and spat at me. He came towards me as if he was going to punch me, shouting more abuse and constantly swearing at me. The police arrested the man shortly afterwards and he has now been charged. But this kind of abuse is nothing new for paramedics. Figures for the West Mercia area show that from April to October this year, there have been 30 physical assaults on paramedics and 54 verbal attacks. For the first financial year, 2017-18, there were 72 physical assaults and 95 verbal assaults. The married father of three said, we get quite a lot of abuse. It's surprising, both verbal and physical violence. It's just something we shouldn't have to face. I wasn't even there to treat him. We come into work to make sure we're here to help people. On November the 13th, the Assaults on Emergency Workers Bill came into force, which gives courts the power to impose longer sentences for attacks on emergency services staff. The change means judges can double the maximum sentence for an assault on an emergency worker from 6 to 12 months in prison. Robert Butler Forty of Wheat Common Lane, Ashford Carbonell, Ludlow, has been charged with assault by beating of an emergency worker, use of threatening, abusive, insulting words and behaviour with intent to cause fear and to provoke unlawful violence. He has been bailed and will appear at Hereford Magistrates Court next month. Anyone with information is asked to call West Mercia Police on 101, quoting incident number 1827S of the 17th of November, or call Crime Stoppers anonymously on 0800 I've got a piece that's a follow-on from the previous <coughs> one about homeless. A former soldier living at a homeless camp, described as a mini Glastonbury, has welcomed offers of support from Worcester News readers 
We first reported on the erection of the makeshift settlement behind Primo Bar and Dining in Sedbury, Worcester. Some locals complained that the site was an eyesore and a hub for drug dealing and antisocial behaviour, although an ex-soldier of the camp denied the claims. The Royal British Legion has now got in contact with the former private, Jake, in the hope of finding him accommodation. Readers have also dominated, whoops, donated to an online Just Giving page in a bid to rehouse those living at the camp. Jake, who drove warrior armoured vehicles in Afghanistan's Helmand province in 2009, said, I'm happy to know that there's decent people out there and this has been brought up. I want help for the other lot to get rehoused too. It's not fair just me getting housed because I'm ex-army. Jake, who joined the army age 16, said he was recently put up in a hotel in Kidminster for four days. The ex-soldier, originally from Birmingham, complained he had to leave because the council only paid for him to stay for a few nights. He added that he also lacked the money to get back and forth to benefit appointments in Worcester. However, <coughs> Pablo Snow founder of Worcester's Tommy Atkins Centre, which helped Jake secure the accommodation, claims he left after one day, which Jake denies. The 27-year-old, who suffers from post-traumatic distress disorder, said he fell into homelessness after his relationship broke down in 2013. He added that after a long period of sofa surfing, he ended up on the streets last summer. His father died when he was 10 and his stepfather passed away a couple of months ago and he's no longer in touch with his mother. He was convicted of assaulting his pregnant girlfriend in 2011. Katie Humphreys, case officer for the Royal British Legion in Worcestershire, said the Royal British Legion has now made contact with James and aims to assist him as a priority. We will then make positive steps towards supporting any further needs Jake has with his collaboration. To donate, to help house the camp, go on bit.ly forward stroke 2QQJ4TB. Players from Worcester Warriors have thrown their weight behind a Christmas campaign to help fund the Worcester Food Bank. Chris Pennell and Justin Clegg made the first donations for the club's annual campaign and the goodies will be given to the food bank in time for Christmas. Collection boxes will be placed outside the East Stand and West Stand entrances at Six Ways at today's Premiership match. So that was last Friday, I'm afraid, against Harlequins and again for the European Challenge Cup match against POW on December the 15th. A collection box will also be placed in the main reception at the stadium so that supporters, suppliers and visitors can support the initiative on non-match days. Mr Clegg said there isn't something really important. As a club, we are very keen to give something back to the local community. 
It's important that we recognise that there are people who are not as fortunate as we are as professional sportsmen. We are all in this together and the more we can help them the better, particularly with Christmas coming. He added, the boys love getting out into the community and being a part of the community. The food bank has issued a shopping list of items it needs in the run-up to Christmas. The list includes festive items such as Christmas puddings, mince pies, tin custard, Christmas cake, new toys, children's gifts, cranberry sauce, stuffing and gravy, as well as good quality tins of ham, turkey, sausage and potatoes. Graham Lucas, Worcester Food Bank Manager, said, There's no better time of year for us to count our blessings and share some of them with families and individuals whose only Christmas wish is to not go hungry. A proposed parking permit scheme to stop residents being forced to park streets away from their own homes has doubled in size. County Councillor Matthew Jenkins says that his new plan for the Arboretum in Worcester would stop people from using the area as a free car park. Residents often struggle to find empty spaces in the ward and end up parking far away from their homes, according to Mr Jenkins. He added, I was working on three separate schemes for the Arboretum when a council officer drew up this plan. It combines them. It's about double the size of the original plan and I'm hopeful we can get sufficient support from residents. People say we've tried this before for 30 years and it's never going to happen. We need to get them on board. There are not many spaces to park in the Arboretum, yet lots of people use it as a free car park for the city centre. Hopefully this will fix that to some extent. Councillor Jenkins said there are well over a thousand houses in the permit scheme area which vertically spans from St George's Lane North to Southfield Street and horizontally from Tennis Walk to the Canal. The councillor said letters would likely be delivered to residents in the affected areas in January. He added, this letter will explain the proposals and will include a voting slip asking whether residents support the proposals or not. In order to be successful, there must be a minimum return of 50% and of those who return their vote, there needs to be 80% support. If there is sufficient support in the ballot early next year, it will probably be implemented in the autumn of 2019. He added that official bodies such as the police must be consulted ahead of a proper public consultation. City Councillor Gareth Jones, who represents the neighbouring St Stephen's Ward, expressed some reservations about whether the plan would succeed. He said they were going to do a residence parking scheme 10 or 11 years ago. Initially, everyone favoured it, but when people found out they would be charged for a pass, it failed. A lot of people are crying out for it, but not when you have to pay for an annual ticket. Councillor Jones added that he does not expect to be an overspill of cars into his ward if, this, if the scheme goes ahead. Under the new plan, each household would be allowed three permits, with the first costing £30, the second costing £40 and a third £60. Visitors' scratch cards would also be available at a price of £5 
for 10 sheets of four permits. Residents can ask questions about the plans at meetings next month. My article is a more general one, um, something about the city's history. City's most interesting buildings are revealed. When it comes to a book about Worcester's most interesting buildings, you could go down the predictable route and roll out places like the Cathedral, Guildhall, and to show you're not an old fuddy-duddy, the gold-plated hive. But all credit to author James Din, who has looked beyond the box and come up with some gems. His Worcester in 50 Buildings, Amberley, £14.99, includes, for instance, 61 Broad Street, the Paul Pry Pub and Lloyd's Bank on the Cross, a place thousands of people pass every day but rarely give a second glance. So what's so special about 61 Broad Street, a tall, narrow building that's only about three strides wide and easy to miss? It's called the Cupola House and stands opposite the entrance to Crown Passage. At ground floor level, the property is another shop. But the answer, as so often is the case, is to consider what is above. In James Din's view, it's one of the city's oddest, not oldest, Georgian buildings. He explains, there are six stories from the cellar to the domed Gothic Belvedere on the roof, but the building is only a single bay wide. For a long time, it's been a puzzle. Some thought the domed room was a private synagogue. But new research has shown it was lived in and probably built by Joseph Blackburn, an 18th century painter. Blackburn was a well-known society portrait artist who first came to fame in Bermuda around 1752, before moving to New England. Many of his portraits are in public collections in America. However, he came from Worcester and returned to the city with his family in 1764. The Blackburn connection could provide a plausible explanation for the external and internal features of this very unusual building, Mr Dinn concludes. He points out the red brick of the facade is typical of Worcester in the Georgian period, as are the stucco coins while above a small uh, modern shop front, three Venetian windows are each surmounted by a painted head. These may well recall Blackburn's travels across the Atlantic, he adds. Inside, there is much that is Chinese in style, particularly the staircase extending the full height of the building and much decorative woodwork and plaster work. In short, it's a fascinating place that deserves more recognition as probably does the Paul Pry, which has enjoyed varying fluctuations over the years, but is currently on and up. James Din describes it as an exceptionally well-preserved backstreet pub, which is highly decorated both inside and out. From the street, the carved stonework frieze and oriel windows, which incorporate the brewer's initials and date of 1901, together with etched glass, give a hint of the elaborate decorations inside. The lobby and passageway have tiled walls and marble intarsia floors, while the bar has original wall benches, fireplace and flooring. The mahogany counter is overlooked by a magnificent back bar, complete with a clock, mirrors and decorative urns. 
Incidentally, Paul Pry was the name of a character in a play first performed in 1825, who was so popular many pubs in England were named after him. Lloyd's Bank, the very model of a trustworthy bank headquarters, according to Mr Din, was built in 1861 as the headquarters of the Worcester City and County Bank, which later merged with Lloyd's. The building was modelled on a Florentine palazzo, recalling the medieval bankers of that city. Its polished pink granite entrance pillars and the intricate carvings are the work of William Forsyth of the noted Worcester family of stonemasons, who also produced the magnificent fountains at Whitley Court. His work on the Lloyd's Building is an oft-overlooked masterpiece. Those are just three buildings among 50 in this new book. It covers all the usual fodder. But if it rams home one lesson, it is to consider things above street level, because often history lies up there just as much as down on the ground. Now, this piece is in total contrast. The cleaners at the uh, Worcester Royal Hospital have been told off after a superbug's been found. A cleaning company was told off after a potentially deadly superbug was found at the city's hospital, <clears throat> says the head of a watchdog. The enzyme Klebsiella pneumoniae, uh, whoops, carbapenin and maize, which is known as KPC, which is a lot easier to pronounce, <laughs> was found in two wards at Worcestershire Royal Hospital. The bug has been described as almost untreatable and can potentially kill a frail patient if it enters their bloodstream. It was found in the hospital in June, although there is still a risk of infection at the site, according to the BBC. Some 24 patients were reportedly affected by the antibiotic-resistant bug. Peter Pinfield, chairman of Health Watch Worcestershire, said it's worrying that the infection risk hasn't improved. The bug can lead to further complications to your hospital visit and can potentially even result in death. I understand the cleaning company has had a telling off. I think it has more than that. Mm. <laughs> it's important that it's been identified. There was a problem with cleanliness. The Trust has done something about that. There have been robust talks with the agency that has come to the cleaning contract. We have been aware that there's a problem and we've been assured an action has been taken, but I haven't seen the details of the report. Vicky Morris, Chief Nursing Officer and Director of Infection <coughs> Prevention and Control for the Trust, said the presence of Carpa whoops penase producing enterobacteriacin, which carries KBC, is becoming more common amongst the general population. And like many hospitals, we've increased our focus in this challenging area, reviewing our processes and adherence to best practice. Following routine screening, a small number of patients on Laurel 3 
and the trauma and orthopaedics ward at Worcestershire Royal Hospital were found to be carrying the uh, Entobacteria lysi. To ensure the safety of our patients, and in line with our stringent infection prevention and control procedures, the wards were closed until all risk of infection had passed. Both wards are now open. Miss Morris added that the patients who may have been exposed to the bug have been contacted and will be screened if they go back to one of the Trust's hospitals. She said that the patients have also been told and if they visited other hospitals, they should inform the staff so that they could undergo checks. The Trust is reportedly improving its cleaning practices. Good. Symptoms of the superbug include fever, coughing up bloody mucus, chills and shortness of breath. Those that want to be screened for the bug can contact their GP or member of the Infection Prevention and Control Team on 01905 733092. There you go. Okay, um, my story is a ward for toddler battling leukaemia. When Worcester dad Dave Fletcher snapped a cute photo of his 20-month-old daughter Izzy falling asleep in her swing, he thought it was just one of those R moments that characterised childhood. It was only a few weeks later, when Izzy was diagnosed with leukaemia, that Dave realised her tiredness was possibly a sign of something more sinister. This year, brave Izzy, now aged three, has received a Cancer Research UK Kids and Teens Star Award in recognition of what she's been through. And her family are encouraging anyone who knows a young cancer patient to nominate them for the honour in the run-up to Christmas. The awards, in partnership with TK Maxx, celebrate the strength shown by youngsters who have been diagnosed with and treated for cancer. All children nominated will receive a trophy, £50 TK Maxx gift card, T-shirt and a certificate signed by a host of famous faces. Izzy Fletcher was nominated for the award earlier this year by her parents Dave and Vicky Fletcher. The couple took Izzy to the GP on a Friday in January 2017 when she came out in a strange rash on her leg. They were advised to come back on Monday for blood tests if the rash had not gone and, it, and to take her straight to hospital if it got worse. By Saturday morning, Izzy's rash had spread and she then developed a temperature, so her parents took her to Worcester Royal Hospital where she was diagnosed with leukaemia the same day. It all happened so fast, said Dave, 39. Looking back, Izzy had been tired, had had a few colds or viruses and quite a bit of bruising on her legs, but we put all this down to normal childhood bumps and minor illnesses. She'd even fallen asleep in her swing a couple of weeks before her diagnosis and I had a, taken a cute picture of her. We didn't think any more of it, but afterwards we realised it was probably all part of the symptoms. Izzy began a course of chemotherapy within days of her diagnosis. She spent her second birthday in Birmingham Children's Hospital waiting to have a procedure to sample her bone marrow. Since then, she's had more than 570 doses of chemotherapy and will remain on treatment until May next year. Despite everything Izzy has been through, her parents count themselves lucky. We were lucky Izzy was diagnosed quickly and lucky she has coped very well with the treatment, 
suffering very few setbacks or unplanned hospital admissions. We have met many families who haven't been so fortunate, said Dave. One of the things we're particularly grateful for was the chance to go on a clinical trial, sorry, trial called UCAL 2011, which means that Izzy has had fewer hospital trips, fewer operations and far less steroids than the standard treatment plan. It shows just how important research is in pioneering <coughs> new treatments. Izzy's mum, Vicky, 37, added, Izzy was so excited to receive her award earlier this year. It was a nice positive experience that rewarded her for struggling on with her treatment. She had a lovely Sorry. afternoon choosing some things to wear in TK Maxx after she was well enough to venture into town. She'll keep the Star Award to look, to look back on after her two and a half year course of treatment. Around 150 children are diagnosed with cancer in Worcestershire <coughs> and the West Midlands every year. Jane Redmond, spokesperson for Cancer Research UK, Kids and Teens in Worcestershire, said cancer can have a devastating impact on their lives and many of those who survive may live with serious long-term mm -hmm. side effects from their treatment. There is no judging panel for the awards because mm -hmm. Cancer Research UK Kids and Teens believes every child diagnosed with cancer deserves special recognition. Our mission is to find research to find mm. new, better and kinder treatments for young cancer patients. We want to bring forward the day when every child and young person survives cancer and does so with a good quality of life. So we're calling on people in Worcestershire to nominate mm -hmm. inspirational youngsters for this year's Cancer Research UK Kids and Scenes Star Awards so that we can recognise their incredible courage. To nominate a child for an award, visit cruk.org forward slash kids and teens. Now we'll go to sport. Hugh? Okay, this is an article about <coughs> basketball. Worcester Wolves might be languishing at the foot of the British Basketball League and out of the BBL Cup. But hedge head coach Ty Shaw is adamant his players are treading in the right direction ahead of tonight's battle with the fourth-placed Bristol Flyers at the SGS Wise Arena at 7.30pm. That was on Saturday, November the 24th. Wolves suffered their ninth successive league defeat last Friday when they went down 73-61 to to leaders London Lions at the University of Worcester Arena. Two days later, Worcester came unstuck again against London, uh, with Lions winning 99-89 to in the quarter-finals of the BBL Cup at the Copper Box Arena. Shaw was not happy to lose both matches, but considering he had just seven players at his disposal, was delighted with their endeavours. There has been more consistency in the level of effort and competitiveness over a 40-minute period in the last two weekends, Shaw said. They are games we would have liked to have won, but can't be too disappointed with the attitude shown by the guys. I think we are definitely treading in the right direction. I am not getting too caught up on results because of the way we are playing. Our style of play and the competitiveness has been more towards the positive end of the scale. Mikey Severa, 
missed both games against Lions due to a slight hamstring injury, but Sean is hopeful Shaw is hopeful the Spanish guard will be fit to face Bristol. Anybody who has played any type of sport knows that hamstrings are a touchy issue, Shaw said. It was an unfortunate thing for him, but going forward he will be fine. It was just bad timing for us. While Wolves are propping up a table, Bristol are riding high with five victories in their past seven league games. Flyers also beat Worcester 80-77 to in their previous meeting in October, but Shaw reckons in-form forward Desham Freeman can make a difference to his side's hopes. Bristol are playing some tough basketball and have got a good group, he said. But having Deshawn now will definitely help us as far as the rebounding. When we last played Bristol, last time out, that was our Achilles heel. So Deshawn should give us an added dimension and he has been pretty good in the games he has played so far. Shaw said the inclusion of Freeman had allowed Robert Crawford to move into his natural position on the wing and take the pressure off Philip Kramer. Philip is appreciating having someone else down there low to bang with the big bodies and compete rebounding-wise, Shaw said. Mm -hmm. It gives us two physical players inside so guys can't walk into position and try to establish themselves. For Deshawn and Philip to be next to each other, it is a pairing and makes us pretty versatile in the big body spot. Mm. Now Worcester City football, mm. we have to pull it together, Stoddart. Mm. Captain Jordan Stoddart echoed the apology offered by manager John Snape for Worcester City's collapse against Westfield and added, we crumbled. The shell-shot skipper said City's players had let down their bosses and fans by trailing 5-0 at half-time in a match that ended 6-1, marking the club's joint worst home defeat in a competitive match for more than 100 years. Second-half substitutes Kinnan Evans and Mason Birch were credited with adding fight to the hopeless cause, but Stoddart admitted there could be no hiding place for the starting eleven. It was not a good day, he said. From the very start and for 87 minutes of the game, we were nowhere near it. It was a bad performance as a team. We let the management and fans down and I would like to apologise for the result. I'm not going to point the finger at individuals. We play together, not just as a team, but the whole squad beyond the 16. You could call it a blip or one-off. We like to pride ourselves on grit, dominance and attacking games, but that didn't happen. It was pretty obvious on and off the pitch all over, really, from the first goal to the last. From a player's point of view, it was a bad day all round. Kinnan and Mason showed they had a bit about them and battled. Even with ten men, they worked their backsides off to get the best out of any situations, which was a credit to some of the lads. I'm not going to say we were brilliant in the second half, but we tried to do what we could with what we had. Some of the decisions were a bit soft, but I'm not going to point the finger at the referee or anyone else. We have to hold up our hands and say this was not our day at all, he added. We have to regroup, come back and go again. There is a long season ahead and we have to fight back. 
This is old Worcester Warriors. The England credentials of stand-in skipper Ryan Mills have been endorsed by Warriors South African bosses, past and present. Director of Rugby Alan Solomons hailed the influence of Worcester's number 12, who was handed the armband in the absence of Gerrit Jan van Vels following his influential performance on Friday's 2013 home triumph over Harlequins. Mills had a 90% success rate with his 20 tackles, taking his Gallagher Premiership tally to 111, while topping the team's turnover count with 10, three of which arrived against the Quins. His impressive display in front of the BT Sports cameras not only had the current Six Ways chief waxing lyrical, but also his predecessor Gary Gold. The USA head coach described Mills as an absolute genius on Twitter when he was responding to growing calls for the international recognition. Mills, he did very well. His heart is with the club and he's a terrific player with a good rugby brain, said Solomons. He's a superb footballer and the club means a lot to him. He did a grand job of skippering the side. I have said before I believe Mills is an international class inside sender. He has all the attributes and that's why he can comfortably go to fry half, as he's done in the past for the Warriors. Mills arrived in Worcester in the summer of 2014, following four years with Gloucester, and has cemented the number 12 shirt this season, playing every minute in the Premiership to date. The Hartbury College graduate started out at 10 and 12 before gradually rising to prominence in his second season and featured for England under the 18s and 20s in the back of his progression from the youth ranks with Exeter Chiefs. Mills was part of the under-20 junior world championships and Six Nations squads in 2011 and 2012, helping his country to grand slam across the latter. He has been called up for two England senior training camps, but is still waiting for the big call. Okay, Worcester City Youths, Girls Under 10s enjoyed a day to remember on Saturday. After playing their best football of the season so far, with a strong all-round defensive and attacking display against West Worcester and scoring their most goals in a game, the girls were then mascots for the first team against Westfields. The under-18s also had a good day as they got the better of a seven-goal encounter at Pounsall Villa. There was another great week for the boys under-18s who continued their impressive form in the Midlands Floodlit Youth League with a 3-2 win in challenging circumstances and atrocious conditions at Lye Town. First-team call-ups and defensive injuries meant under-16s Zach Bowater, Tom Griffin, Ethan Sherwood, Tom Mills and Ollie Berry were called into the fray along with under-17s Jack Baker... Matty Patrick Rivers. Non-disappointed in torrential rain with Joe Clark and Patrick Rivers netting before Tom Allen kept a man-of-the-match performance with a stunning 25-yard half-volley to win the contest. 
A tremendous last-minute save from Ben Clay then kept Millfield at bay as the under-18s came from behind to earn a 2-1 friendly win with strikes by Griffin and Berry. Their close games for the under-10s, 11s and 12s against Kettering, Alchurch and Birmingham City. The under-12s match proved to be a fantastic advert for youth football, despite City succumbing to two late goals in a 3-2 thriller after Charlie Lanny and Jake Round scored. It was a similar story for the under-15s and 13s, who were both edged out by Kidderminster Harriers 1-0 and 3-1, respectively. Thank you, Moira. Now, on this day, the 29th of November in years gone by... 29th of November, 1530. Following his arrest for treason, Cardinal Wolsey was recalled to London but died on the way at Leicester. He was buried there in Abbey Park. 1797. Gaetano Donizetti, opera composer of operas such as Lucia de Lammermoor, was born in Bergamo, Italy. 29th of November 1832, Louisa M. Olcott, author of oh, Little, Little Women, Women, was born in Germantown, Pennsylvania. Mm. 1895, Busby Berkeley, choreographer and director who devised a style which revolutionised Hollywood musicals, was born. 1907, Florence Nightingale, the Lady of the Lamp, was presented with the Order of Merit by Edward II, Edward VII for her work during the Crimean War. 1929, US Admiral Richard Byrd with pilot Bernd Balchen became the first man to fly over the South Pole. 1932, the first performance took place of Cole Porter's The Gay Divorcee in New York, starring Fred Astaire, but more importantly, perhaps featuring the song Night and Day. Mm. 1954, Sir George Roby, comedian and actor, died. He introduced the song If You Were the Only Girl in the World during the First World War. At 1986, debonair British-born actor Cary Grant died, mm -hmm. and 2010, a French couple came forward with 271 previously unknown works by Picasso. Oh, a staggering trove! Wait a minute, worth 50 million pounds. Mm. We should all be so lucky. I'll check the loft tonight. How nice and cheering that was after all. Mm. Sludge. Now then, the mm. death and funeral mm. announcements. Hugh, would you start for okay. us, please? Uh, this is the uh, notice about Douglas Burgess, who passed away suddenly but peacefully on November the 15th, aged 83, surrounded by his loved ones. Funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Tuesday, December the 11th at 12.15pm. Uh, Gillian Heather Wassall Nee Faithful passed away peacefully on November the 16th, aged 70. Funeral service will take place on Thursday, December the 6th at mm -hmm. St. Peter at Vincula Church, Church Lane, Tiberton, mm -hmm. at 12 noon, followed by a private committal at Worcester Crematorium. 
Henry John Hall, known as John, of Pershaw, on November the 17th, 2018, suddenly but peacefully, after a short illness, aged 89 years. A requiem mass will be held at the Holy Redeemer Catholic Church, Priest Lane, Pershaw, on Thursday, December the 6th at 11am, followed by private interment. No flowers by request. Rachel Ann King, nay Whittingham, passed away peacefully on November the 8th, 2018. The funeral has taken place. Audrey Sylvia Potts, Ord, sadly passed away on November the 6th, 2018, aged 90 years. The funeral service will take place on Wednesday, December the 5th, 2018, at Worcester Crematorium at 12.15. Daisy Ethel Russell, nay Taylor, passed away peacefully at the Lawns Nursing Home, Kempsey, on November the 12th, 2018, aged 95 years. The funeral has taken place. Christine Marjorie Sidwell, nay Harrison, passed away peacefully in the loving care of Bream Residential Care Home, Bromsgrove, on November the 6th, 2018, aged 91 years. The funeral has taken place. And Graham Paul Taylor passed away peacefully at Worcester Royal Hospital on November the 11th, aged 67 years. Unfortunately, no funeral details have been given. John Philip Sayers of Northwick, Worcester, passed away peacefully at Perry Manor on November the 13th, 2018, aged 73 years. <coughs> The funeral service will be held at Worcester Crematorium on Monday, December the 3rd at 11.30am. Keith Woodfield sadly passed away on November the 3rd, 2018, aged 83. The funeral has taken place. Muriel Ballinger passed away mm -hmm. peacefully at Worcester Royal Hospital on November the 17th, aged 89 years. Mm -hmm. The funeral service will be at Worcester Crematorium mm -hmm. on Monday the 7th of the 10th at 12.15. Mm -hmm. Family flowers only, please. Mm -hmm. Gordon John Griffith, formerly of Poick, mm -hmm. passed away peacefully on November the 14th, aged 88 years. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Wednesday mm -hmm. the December the 5th at 11.30am. Family flowers only, please. Graham John Newton, known as Ted, passed away after a short illness at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, Birmingham, on 15th of November 2018, aged 59. Graham's funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Monday the 3rd of December at 2.30. Family flowers only, please. Anthony John Wilmore, Tony of Warnden, passed away peacefully on Sunday, November the 18th, aged 78 years. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Wednesday, December the 5th at 1.45. Family flowers only and request for no black, please. Can I... Geoffrey uh, Roberts <coughs> passed away peacefully on Thursday, November the 8th, 2018, aged 73 years. His funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium Chapel on Monday, December the 3rd, 2018 at 1pm, followed by an internment at Worcester Cemetery at 2pm.
Wynne Taylor passed peacefully away on November the 20th, aged 82 years, and her funeral has taken place. Right, and now mm. birthdays, we have two, mm. both on the 8th of December, Florence mm. Evans and Sandra Wood. Happy birthday to both of you on your special day. Happy birthday. Happy, Happy birthday. birthday. And thought for the week. This is from Micah, chapter 5, verses 2 and 4. But you, Beth Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. Now some useful telephone numbers. Out of ours medical help, 6 to 8 p.m., 0300 NHS non-emergency, 111. Malvern Theatre, 01684, 892277. Worcester Live, Swan Theatre, Huntingdon Hall and the Henry Sandon Hall, Worcester 611427, Worcester Hub Council Matters, Worcester 765765 or 72233. Crime Stoppers 0800 Samaritans 116123, a free phone number. And now we'll go on to some published letters. Thank you. A letter here from Mrs. C. Bayliss of Worcester. Sir, every morning this week I have seen the now familiar sight of homeless people in doorways. Each one of them was stoic about their circumstances and none of them were lacking in manners or politeness. Whether they have a weakness for alcohol or drugs or are loners who shun social contact, it should be within the means of this city to ensure a bed inside a warm building is always available if they want it. People can be very vocal about human rights. Homeless citizens have rights too. Mm, certainly do. I've got a Fair Point article mm, mm. By, on the letters page mm. by Grace Walton and it's Have All Those Must Have Gifts Made Christmas About Greed? Mm, mm. As Santa graced us with his presence at Crowngate on, mon on Sunday, it inspired me to write a Fair Point about Christmas. Mm. I do adore this festive time of year. Mm. The family get-togethers, the overwhelming amount of food and booze, mm. those cheerful jumpers and overplayed Christmas tunes. In my house, the Pogue's Christmas classic, Fairy Tale of New York, is on repeat. Yet somehow still, none of us know the actual lyrics. The concept of Christmas means different things to everybody. For some, it's spending time with loved ones. To others, it could be the excitement of giving gifts. When we were children, the Christmas holiday was a time when we would be on our best behaviour. 
We understood Father Christmas and his elves would be watching over us to see if we'd been good boys and girls and would thus receive presents. Mm -hmm. This concept has helped parents over the years to teach their kids the importance of good behaviour. And of course, getting the children to bed in time as Santa is watching. As we grow older, Christmas takes on a whole other meaning. My mum always reminds me of how, when she was a child, waking up on Christmas morning to find a fresh orange in her stocking was considered a luxury. Now, however, I could not dream of any child finding a piece of fruit in their stocking. There would be outrage. It does make me wonder, over the years, has Christmas taught us to become greedy? It seems Christmas is increasingly becoming about buying extravagant gifts none of us can actually afford. I browse through Facebook, as you do, to see what everyone is up to, and parents are posting what they have bought their children for Christmas. I was surprised to discover some kids will be having the new iPhone. I understand why families would like their children to have a phone for the purpose of safety. However, splurging out on something so luxurious for a child seems a bit over the top. It's a challenge in this country not to teach our children to want more and more. With social media and peer pressure, nowadays it is considered a must to have the latest of everything. We should take a step back and appreciate what we already have. After all, Christmas is not about how much money you spend, but the time you value with your loved ones. This is about Diabetes at Christmas from Jenny Hurst of the Independent Diabetes Trust. <clears throat> As preparations and excitement for Christmas grows, we recognise that it can be a difficult time for people who have type 1 or type 2 diabetes, especially if it's their first Christmas with the condition. It can be a time of temptation, unpredictable or delayed meals, extra nibbles, excitement and stress, all of which can make managing their diabetes more of a problem. We have just published our December newsletter and a new booklet called Diabetes <coughs> at Christmas to help families who live with a condition. It gives various options for Christmas dinners, a recipe for homemade lower carbohydrate and calorie Christmas pudding and many other tips. We also have a booklet, Diabetes Everyday Eating, and we hope that the newsletter and two booklets will help to make life easier over the festive season. We're happy to send out these, free of charge, to any of your readers. They can contact IDD team on 01604 622 837 or email inquiries at org. Okay, my letter's from C.D. Lee of Worcester. Sir, if the council is strapped for cash, why send out and fund long-suffering leaf blowers? Much better to sweep these up and bag them, thus reducing gutter blockages and removal flooding. Until sense prevails, I will continue to liberate any block gutters in my area. And one last one on Christmas. Sir, it's impossible to ignore that Christmas is fast approaching, fairy lights to decorations, hallmarks of the festive period are all around us. 
But after the Black Friday sales, Giving Tuesday today is a day to do little things that can make a big difference to others in and around Worcester. Whether you donate money to charity, volunteer in your community or donate unwanted clothes to a charity shop, everyone can give something back. And finally, on the theme of Christmas, it's worth mentioning that Maid Marian and the Merry Men, this year's pantomime at the Swan Theatre, is featuring two audio-described performances for the express benefit of those with visual impairment. Ben Humphrey, the director of the show, is passionate about making the shows at the Swan accessible to all. Well, it's something that we have at the theatre. We've been very, very keen to try and be as inclusive as possible over the last few years. And we started with signed performances for the hard of hearing. Uh, And actually, as we've developed our inclusive feel to the theatre, we are very aware that there are all sorts of different people that can't necessarily enjoy the theatre in the same way that other people can. And we're very keen to, to try and make sure that that is reduced as much as possible because we want everyone to enjoy this and we want everyone to be a part of a part of the magic of of pantomime the two pantomime performances with audio description are saturday the 8th of december at 7 p.m and saturday the 29th of december at 2 p.m both at the swan theater tickets can be booked through the main box office at huntingdon hall or by ringing 01905 Well, now we've reached the end of this recorded edition. Thank you to Paddy, Hugh, Moira and Barry. We hope you've enjoyed listening and that you'll come back for more next week. Best wishes from me, Evelyn, and from all the team. Goodbye. Bye. 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 Yes, it would be nice if we could promise something cheerful for next time. Mm. Mm. I have one.